For those who are regulars, we've spent eight weeks, eight weeks um, in the same series. And we've been looking at the writings of John. We could go another eight, ten, twelve. Um, we've been looking at the writings of a first century disciple of Jesus named John. And so far, today we're going to turn a corner on this last week of the series. So far, what we've been focusing on is what's known as the first advent of Jesus. We've been looking at his life, and we've been specifically looking at the first advent, which is the time from his birth here on earth until his resurrection and what's called the ascension um, into heaven. So that's what we've been focusing on for the first eight. Well, we'd be remiss uh, in a series where we're looking at the writings of John to not at least touch on the book that has touched off all kinds of, um, boy, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and that is his book that we call Revelation, the book of Revelation. So let me give this big disclaimer up front. We're not going to be able to cover the book of Revelation adequately in, in, well, in one week or in a year even. There's so much there, so much there. But what I, um, what I want to do is I, I, I want to make sure we at least address a couple things as we've been talking about John and, and address things from this writing. So let's introduce this, this book the way that John introduces it. Here's how the book of Revelation opens up with, with these words. It opens up like this. John talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants things that, say this with me, must soon take place. I wrote this intro in your notes. Inside your bulletin, there's a, a sheet like this. If you could just pull that out, and if you could underline that stuff, that, that phrase that says, must soon take place. Because you're going to see as we go through this, this is a reoccurring theme here. That, it, that this, there's a day that's coming soon. A day that's coming soon. All right, he wants to show the servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecy. And blessed are those who hear, who keep what's written in it, for the time is what? Near. There that is again, this, this idea of this, this day that's coming near. Well, this, this book focuses primarily on what's called the second advent, or some people call it the second coming of Jesus. There was the first one when he came as a baby and, and grew to be a man, was, died and, and rose again. And then there's this second coming that we're going to be looking at a little bit today. Now, another disclaimer I want to make about this book of Revelation is that it's very hard to understand. Very hard to understand. One of the reasons it's hard to stand, it's written in a genre called apocalyptic. And there's not a whole lot of us who've been trained in apocalyptic literature. It's not the same as other forms of literature. Also in the book of Revelation, a lot of the, the language that's used, it's poetic or it's metaphor. And then to top it off, if this wasn't enough to confuse you, um, you also, in the book of Revelation, you have some things that have happened, you have some things that are happening, and you have some stuff that's yet to happen, and some of it's all of the above. And then so try to discern, okay, what has happened, what is happening, what is yet to happen, what fits all of these. It, that's really, really hard. So it's a difficult book to understand. Rather than try to get into all the nuances of the book, what I want to try to do today is three things. I want to try to do this in a short period of time. I want to try to do three things. I want to point out two things that Christians agree on with this book. I could find at least two. <laughs> That's about it. Um, I want to point out two things that we agree on. I want to point out two things that we disagree on. And then I want to ask what I believe is the question that matters most. So that's what we're going to try to do in a short period of time. Let's dive right in. Please, if you haven't already, pull out your notes and write this down. Let's start with the two points of agreement. There may be other ones, but here are two that come to my mind. Two points of agreement among Christians. And let me define Christians a little bit more. Um, the way I want to define Christians here today, 
in, is not just a follower of Jesus, but a follower of Jesus who believes that the Bible is the authoritative source that we have for truth and conduct. So we're going to be looking to the scriptures on this. There are people who sincerely are trying to follow Jesus, but don't necessarily hold that the scripture is, is the word of God, which I've got all kinds of challenges with that train of thought. But, but, but anyway, so, so that's what I'm saying. So among those who believe the Bible is our authoritative source for truth and conduct, here's one point of agreement, and that is Jesus' return will be qualitatively different than his arrival. That his second coming is going to be different than the first. And not just that it comes second, qualitatively different. When Jesus came into the world, he came as a, what? A baby. All right, and, and, and this baby came to show us the way and to provide the way. This baby came to show us the way through Jesus' example. This baby came to provide the way for us to be reconciled with God through his death and, and resurrection. So this baby came to show the way, provide the way. And those who have been with us, you'll be familiar with passages like this that, come from, that, that are sprinkled all over John's writings, passages that, that talk about this first advent in these types of terms, things like this. I've come into the world as light so that whoever sees me may not remain in darkness. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. I used to always get tripped up on that because I'm like, he does come to judge. Oh, first advent, second advent. So... This is referring to the first advent. I didn't come to judge. I came to save. But this second advent is going to be different. This isn't, this, the Jesus that is revealed to us through the writings of John, it's not just baby Jesus growing up. Not the, what was that movie? The baby Jesus Down praise. The, what was that? The, yet, yes, that, the, okay. Don't go see it for theological insights. Um, <laughs> praise to baby Jesus. Anyway, but, but there's another Jesus. There's another Jesus that, that's coming. And this is the one we're going to look at today. That, well, not another Jesus. Sorry about that. There's, there's the second advent of Jesus that's coming, and that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Revelation 19. Oh, let's, let's read from the Bible because I get in trouble sometimes when I, frequently I get in trouble when I start commenting too much. All right, here we go. Revelation 19. As those of you who have your Bibles are turning here, um, oh, and on your phones, and turn into your phone or, or your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, um, we've got a copy that we could give you for free. You can just pick it up from the welcome table there, um, and you can uh, take that home as a gift to you. All right, here we go. Revelation 19. Let's, let's look at one of these descriptions of the second coming that's given to us from the writings of John. This is Revelation 19, starting with verse 11. Verse 11 says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head, or on his head, are many diadems, and he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this might be a very different picture of Jesus than you're familiar with. And it, it certainly was a picture that was very different than the Jesus I grew up with. We never, never, across the Christ Lutheran, we never went here, you know, ever. Instead, in Sunday school in particular, we had this thing called a flannel graph. Flannel board, sometimes they call them. It's this, um, like a chalkboard covered with a felt or flannel. Um, and then you have these little felt 
characters that you can stick on there to tell these stories. Well, our flannel graph Jesus, he sometimes was seen with like a, a sheep, a little lamb, you know, or he's, he's praying for the little kids and doing nice things. Never, never do we ever get flaming eyes Jesus, you know, or mouth of sword Jesus. I might have paid better attention, you know, if we had, had that. So, but this is this aspect of Jesus, and clearly the second coming is going to be different than the first. Clearly the second coming is going to be qualitatively different to the first. We will not commemorate the second coming by singing Silent Night, Holy Night. There will be some songs. We see them in the heaven. It's like victory songs. It won't be Silent Night, Holy Night. So that's one point of agreement among believers. As we look at the scriptures, we see qualitatively it's a different deal. Here's, a, here's another point of agreement among Christians, and that is this. The day of his return is coming soon. Now, when I say agreement on soon, agreement in the sense of we don't know what soon means, but we know that the Bible says soon, okay? So that's what my disclaimer there. The day of his return is coming soon, but only God knows the day or the hour. Harold Camping does not know the day and the hour. In case you were wondering, he doesn't know the day or the hour. And why do I say that? Why can I stand up here in front of you and say, Harold Camping does not know the day or the hour? Because Jesus said, we don't know the day or the hour. Here's, here's a, let's go out of, out of the book of John for just a, a moment here. This is from um, an, another account of Jesus' life. It's, it's referred to as the Gospel of Mark. And these are the words of Jesus here. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, he co- and commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows in the morning. What I say to you this, I say, stay awake. Do we know the day or the hour? No, we don't know the day or the hour. So here are two things that, that, that Christians agree on. We agree that Jesus' returns will be qualitatively different, at least if we look at the Bible as our authoritative source for this. And we know that his day is coming soon, but we don't know the day or the hour. Now, even though Christians agree on these points, there's a couple points we don't agree on. Um, let me give you two of them. And these are the two, in my mind at least, that are the ones that cause the most uh, disagreement. Um, one of them is this, the timing and nature of what's called the millennium. The word millennium, it's uh, Latin in origin. It, it comes from two Latin words, meaning thousand and year. And let me show you where that comes from, this idea of, of, a, of a millennium. Um, if you go to the scripture, if someone tells you millennium, it's all over the Bible, that's their opinion. I, I know of one section where it really refers to the millennium, and that's the one we're going to take a look at here. Now, could there be others that are referring to it? Yeah, possibly. But this is the section. If people talk about the millennium, um, this is the section that it comes from. This is Revelation chapter 20. Let's go verses 1 through uh, 15, I believe. Yeah, go 1 through 15. Here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he may be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads uh, or their hands. <laughs> Do we have a lot of stuff that we could cover someday from Revelation? We will. We'll, we'll come back to Revelation sometime and try to see if we can make any sense out of that. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a... Now, there it is again. The rest of the, the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and there was no place to be found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then uh, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they have done. Now, unlike the thousand years, this book of life shows up several times. That's an interesting, another thing it'd be interesting to take a look at. All right, the sea gave up its dead and, were in, and, and who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and those uh, who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, all right, we're going to go through this line by line. Here we go. Someday, someday we, we, we should, because this is, this is important, important stuff. This, so the, the, the passage here that we looked at, this is this term called, where we get the term called the millennium, this, this thousand years. And there's lots of disagreement about it. Is it a literal thousand years? Is it, is it not literal? Are there other passages in Scripture that are linked to this thousand years? If so, which ones? All kinds of controversy there. As there is a lot of controversy about this next term, and that is the tribulation. So let's, let's put that in our notes, too. There are two significant points of disagreement, at least two, among Christians, and these are among people who look to the Bible as our authoritative source. We disagree um, over the timing and nature of the millennium and also the timing and nature of the tribulation. Timing and nature of the tribulation. Here, we're going to go back to Mark again, so we're stepping out of John's writings for just a moment. And what's interesting about the passage we're going to look at now is that this comes right before the passage of Mark that we looked at earlier. So this comes right before, in fact, leads right into the passage from Mark that talks about we don't know the day or the hour. And, but it speaks to this tribulation. This is Mark uh, chapter 13. Here's what it says. But when you see the abomination of desolation, sounds like a thrash metal band. All right, when you see the abomination of desolation standing there where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, he shortened the days. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Then it goes into that passage we looked at earlier. But concerning that day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. All right, so this is one of several passages that speaks to, beyond just persecution, to a period of, of... what it refers to is tribulation. Now, the Bible speaks about all kinds of opposition we're going to face as Christians, all kinds of challenges, all kinds of trials, all kinds of persecutions. But it seems to identify this period of time as well where it's going to be intense, intense. All right, well, let me, let me try to present an incredibly simplistic look at some different ways people have tried to interpret all this, particularly the, the tribulation and, and the millennium. So we have a couple objects here on this table, um, each one representative. Our serpent dragon here is representative of the tribulation, okay? So where you see this placed at these different, different um, ideas, this represents the, a period of tribulation, all right? The cross here, the big cross, represents Jesus' return, okay? So that's what this is. Our hourglass symbolizes the start of the millennium and the period of time of the millennium. And then the chair here represents God's throne. When he comes and all darkness is cast out of the kingdom and, and those who, um, who this kingdom, this, these, these wonderful rooms, this banquet has been prepared for, where you get to experience that. that. Okay, so these are the, the different sim, uh, symbols here. So one of the ways where people try to piece all of these scriptures together is what's called pre-millennialism. Pre, the prefix pre means what? Before our English majors here, so it means before. So there are those who who believe that the tribulation will happen before the millennial millennium. All right. So under what's known as classic premillennialism, and again, this is very simplistic. There are all kinds of offshoots and all kinds of nuances, but kind of big picture thinking. One one of the ways uh, that people interpret this is what's referred to as classic premillennialism, where there's a period of tribulation and believers and non-believers go through it. We, we, we go through this together, all right? Christians get really the receiving end of it because we're not doing all the stuff the others are doing, but we're in it together. And then Jesus returns, starting, then that triggers, Jesus' return triggers the start of the millennium. And for a thousand years, we have all that going on. And then at the end of a thousand, thousand years, everything is, is, everyone ends in their eternal state where they're going to spend eternity, Okay? So that's classic premillennialism. Now, there's another strain of premillennialism that's extremely popular, popularized in part by the Left Behind series. And that, these pieces remain basically in place, but the difference here 
is that there's an understanding that before the tribulation happens, the believers will be raptured, will be taken from earth so that they don't experience the seven years of tribulation. They come back with Jesus, triggering the start of the millennial, and then judgment follows that. There's a, a judgment that happened here too, but the final judgment happens then. Okay? So that's pre-tribulational, pre being before, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism. Oh, easy for me to say, huh? All right, let's uh, move on to the next one. This, this one after, this one called post-millennialism, after the, um, after the First and Second World War, this one really fell out of popularity. Because here's what this one describes. Post-millennialism, post means what? After. So in post-millennialism, you have Jesus' return and judgment happening after the millennium. In fact, you could probably even put the, the cross on the chair. Um, in post-millennialism, you have a, a, the church really doing their job. I'm, I'm hiding. I'm, I feel like I'm lost behind this. In, in post-millennialism, you really have the church really doing their job. In fact, so well that we begin to live more in what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as the church moves forward, we begin to experience more and more of what eternity is going to be like here on earth as, as we do justice and we love mercy and we walk humbly with our God. And so we, as we move forward, we basically get to a point where God's kingdom is ruling on earth as, as it does in heaven. And then there's a return of Jesus and, and the new heavens and new earth are, um, are established. So that's post-millennialism. All right, and then there's another one called amillennialism that, that a number of folks have. And in amillennialism, a means, you guys got this one? Like no or not, yep. Okay, so amillennialism treats the millennial as symbolic, saying, you know, there's going to be persecutions, there's going to be advancements by the kingdom of God, but there's not a defined 1,000 literal year period rather than that. So that's amillennialism. All right? And then there's this one. This one's not, at least you won't find it in the, the, in the, um, the books. <laughs> if you go to your theolo theolo theology books or you, you take your, your class in Bible school, you won't see this one, but it, it's, it's popular among many of us. Uh, I, I first heard the, the term panmillennialism coined by a guy named Pastor Paul Anderson, who many of you probably know. He says it's all going to pan out in the end. You know, that's his... His understanding of it. Now, even, even as I say that, I, I want to make a couple things clear. And, and one of the things I really, really, really want to make clear before we go any further is I don't want to make light of, of, of any of these in, in the sense that all of these, these understandings, all of these theories of how it's going to play out have champions among them who are God-fearing, Bible-believing, scholarly folks. You know, all, all of those ones that I, that I put up there, have, they, they'll go to the Scripture. In fact, if you listen to someone who really believes one of these from a biblical standpoint, if they're the only one you've heard, you're going to go, yeah, that is the way it is, until you hear the next person. And you go, yeah, that's the way it is. And then the, 
you know. And, and so each one of these, these didn't just come up by accident. Every one of these positions comes as people have studied the scriptures and have tried to make sense of this. And they can all bring their different scriptures. So, so in that sense, I'm not trying to make light of, of, of any of those theories. I'm also not going to try to say that, that what the simplistic model you've, that I've shown you there is exactly how it is. In fact, I'm tripping over words because even words like judgment, well, when exactly does it take place? What is the nature of that? It, it's going to vary, you know, based on who's advocating and what, what all that language means from person to person. Okay? So we're good on that disclaimer? Okay. Now that I put that disclaimer out, let me, let me say this. Even though, even though um, brilliant folks, uh, brilliant folks have studied the scriptures and, and can, hold, can articulate all these positions, it, it perplexes me. It perplexes me as to why so many Christians want you to check a box on this. It, it just confuses me why, why in seminary so many of the professors would say, which one are you in? Which one do you believe? And not just as an exercise of, of, to get you to articulate a point, as in you need to have one. It, it, it perplexes me. It perplexes me why denominations have divided over this. I remember when I was looking for a denominational home, um, there was a denomination I was very interested in, and, and as I pursued it, I found out, as a pastor, I would have to sign on to one of these end-time deals, or I couldn't be a part of that fellowship. I had to sign on to one, one of these, a very, very narrow understanding. That perplexes me. It perplexes me. And it doesn't just perplex me. I, I, I'm going to... I'm going to take a contrary viewpoint on that. I think as Christians, we need to be 3D people, what I call 3D people when it comes to theology. We need to be 3D because not everything is 1D. Some things are 3D. And here's what I mean by that. On the screens right now, we have a three consecutive circles. In the middle, we have a circle that I'm going to identify as divide. Coming out from there, we have another circle, which I'll identify as defend. And then we have another circle, which I would say is discuss. Now, for the record, there are some things that should divide us. There are some things where this is what the where we can say this is what the Bible says and this is not what the Bible says. Specifically with end times, when somebody starts saying, "I know the day or the hour of Jesus' return," that to me starts. I start hearing cult. You know, my cult flags go up. And I'm not questioning their sincerity. I'm not questioning the fact of some of these folks, I don't think they're intentionally trying to mislead, but I put that outside of Scripture. And I would say that's a divide-over type of deal. No matter how good that speaker, teacher was, I, I, that would be I can't, with good conscience, become a member of that church or that fellowship. I can't sign on that dotted line because that's outside of what the Scripture teaches. Now, um, when you move beyond that, though, we have these other circles. You know, that's not our only choice. We don't have to check a box on everything. We don't have to check a box on everything. There are some things where it's in the category of defend. And maybe some of you, you really believe passionately about one of these end times. Or you can d feel strongly against one. And that's great. Bring it. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. And we can learn from each other as we, as we passionately say, I, here's what I believe and why. That, that's great. So some of you are going to feel that about some of these end time things. You know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll feel that way about one of these. Right now, I'm on that outside category of discuss. 
If you came all passionate and all fired up and you got all these scriptures, we could have a conversation, but you would get very angry with me because I wouldn't really care which one you landed on. You know, to be quite frank with you, great, good for you. You know, is kind of how I would feel. And not, again, because you don't have a point. It's just, but that's how you feel. Other people feel differently, and I really don't know. The Bible, the Bible, it's a both and in so many situations. One of the ways the Bible is a both and is that on one hand, the Bible says it emphasizes the importance of what's called sound doctrine. We need to be a people who don't just say who cares about everything. We should dig deep and we should go into the scriptures. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me say, get into the Bible. Don't just listen to what I say. Don't just listen to what other teachers say. Read it yourself. Study it yourself. Get different viewpoints so that you become grounded and you know why you believe what you believe. And the reason you believe it is not just because somebody told you. This is the way it is. So on one hand, you've got the Bible emphasizing sound doctrine. So should we study these things? Yes. Should we try to come up with an understanding? Yes. So on one hand, we've got sound doctrine. But on the other hand, we have unity in Christ. And while the Bible talks about sound doctrine and a handful of times mentions it specifically that way, how many more times does the Bible stress unity in Christ? Unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. And we can remain unified and we can defend our ideas and discuss ideas, but guess what? We're not going to take our Bibles and go home, start another church here and there over certain things. And particularly with this issue, particularly with this issue, if we're arguing about all this stuff, I liken it to this. The Bible describes um, this, this second coming using a lot of warlike imagery. Did you, did you pick up on that? A lot of warlike imagery. We're in a battle, and the enemy would love for Christians, if we're using this warlike imagery, the, the enemy would love for us as Christians to be arguing about our uniforms, our camouflage. I say we're wearing black with green. I say we're wearing green with black. You know, and the battle's going on over here, and we're over here fighting over what color our uniforms are. The enemy would love that. Instead of, are you out doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God? I talked to a woman, as she, she sought me out after the first service. She said, you know, I was a skeptic. I was not a believer. I was, you know, anything but. But she said, one of the turning points in my life was when the, this person who cared for me sat across the table, looked me in the eye, and started crying because she says, when Jesus comes back, I don't want you to be left behind. You know, this woman got, got the big picture of a day is coming. A day is coming, and that day matters. So before we close today, please write this down, and, and not just on your paper, but write it in your heart. On that day, are you going to be found forgiven and faithful? When Jesus comes back, and he's coming soon, are you going to be found forgiven and faithful on that day? This is where we turn the corner from Bible trivia to real life. Because you can know these things in your head, but still live a trivial life. We don't want that. We want to be found forgiven and faithful. For some Christians, th these passages, this is like an oasis when they've been going through a desert. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. And as you put it up on the screens, you know, imagine that you're a person right now in prison because of your faith. Or imagine that you are a person who is working day in and day out 
for issues of justice when there's so much injustice in this world. Or, or maybe you're a person, you were born into a situation or you found yourself in a situation where, where you're just tired. You're trying to do the right and God-honoring thing, whether it's in a marriage that, that, that is, seems to be falling apart because one spouse seems to be a different person than you married, or whether it's, it's in your family, you're watching someone go astray, whatever the case may be. This is an oasis of hope for those who are tired, those who are persecuted. And and here's why. Look what it says about that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw that holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God. It was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and women. He will dwell with them. He will, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, how many of you long for that day? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Former things have passed away. He who was seated on that throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And there are people all around the world who are holding on to that. The last song we're going to sing in a little bit. I mean, the reason that song, I told Dan and Joe, would you please do this song like every week that you can (laughs) during Easter, is because I heard this song in Haiti and I'm sitting in this room with these missionaries and pastors and people who are out there doing justice, love and mercy, walking humbly in a really hard situation. I heard them singing these songs of hope and you should have heard the passion in their voices. You know, that day is coming. We're working hard now. That day is coming when this will be no longer. So one of the reasons why it's important for us as as believers to look at this passage is a reminder of that hope. As you're going through the stuff, reminding you, hey, 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 the new day is coming. The new heaven and the earth is coming. The new heaven and the earth is coming. This work is not in vain. But let me also speak to another thing that this scripture speaks to, and that speaks to people who have been lulled to sleep. You know, I was thinking about today, and we have so many people in here who've heard these things presented so many times. We have a lot of people who've been to Bible school. We have a lot who've been trained in seminary. We have a number of people who have researched and and heard hundreds of sermons on this. And so in my head, I'm thinking, okay, there's some people who've never heard it, so we're going to present it out there. But what about those people? God, what do you have for them? Well, for us, wake up is what's for us. We need to be reminded of this. You know, the Bible itself uses that imagery of sleep. And our, oh, this culture will lull you to sleep about that. It'll either lull you to sleep in terms of, you got time? Maybe focus on your retirement, focus on this, focus on this. Or lull you to sleep in the sense of you're so busy, you're not even thinking spiritual things. And so for us, we need to remember, day's coming. It's coming soon. It's coming. Bible says over and over and over again, it's coming soon. Are you ready? You know, if Jesus comes on Saturday, I'm not saying he is. <laughs> if Jesus comes on Saturday, is he going to find you down at Urban Homeworks? Or is he going to find you watching Die Hard again for the 40th time? You know? What are you going to be doing this Saturday afternoon? What God wants you to do? You know? Caring for other people? 
Or are you going to be just asleep, living a trivial life? Because look at this passage. Here we go. Revelation 6. This is the, 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 this day of Jesus' return is referred to often as the great and terrible day. Great for those who are going to be found forgiven and faithful. Terrible for everybody else. Look, what it, look at the imagery that's used here. When the Lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit, shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free hid themselves and look where they hid themselves. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains during an earthquake. We'll come back in a second. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the faith of him, face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now, one of the things I find interesting about this is originally the, 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 what we call the book of Revelation went out as a letter and it went out to seven churches. And what I find interesting is Almost, if not all of those seven churches within a hundred years of this, this letter getting to them had experienced a great earthquake. So whether they had been through it themselves or whether it was the collective memory of the community, they knew what a great earthquake could do. And so these people are hearing these words and they're, they're hearing about people who go to caves and the foot of a mountain in an earthquake. Where do you not want to be when there's a major earthquake happening? Do you want to be in a cave? In case you don't know, no, the answer is no. Do you, want to, do you want to be at the foot of a rocky mountain with boulders? No. But these people are running to caves. They're running to the foot of the mountain because they're so afraid of what's coming. Talk about two different destinies. Could the Bible make it any clearer than that? On that great and terrible day, there will be some who... This is what I've longed for, deeper than i ever known. And they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And there's going to be others who hear, I never knew you. And they'll be shut out when the new heaven and the new earth come. So as the worship band comes on, let's pray. <laughs> huh? Yeah? Let's pray. As we sing this song, this great proclamation of Jesus' life, culminating with his return. Let's pray. Father, may on that day, may we and those we know be found forgiven and faithful. Father, may we right now start living under that rule. God, you are king. You are king. You're king. And back in the day, they wanted to make you king by force, we read, you know, in John's writings. And when you fed 5,000 people, they wanted to make you a king, but it wasn't your time then. Your time's coming. Lord, may we be found forgiven and faithful because we've submitted to your kingship now. Lord, I pray every one of us in this room, whether we've done it before or whether this is the first time, Lord, I pray that right now we would fully bow to you alone as king, that we would leave all false gods behind, all false kings, anything else that we've been serving, anything else that's been, been, that we've been giving our devotion to that should be for you alone, Father. May we, this time right now, may we... Um, confess that that is sin, that is idolatry. May we turn to you humbly saying, God, you are king, you are Lord. Be king of kings now that on that day I may be found forgiven and faithful, that glorious day that's coming soon. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.